Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden hosts author Elizabeth Wilcox to discuss her new book, The Long Tale of Trauma. Wilcox discusses the weight of trauma as it affected her family through five generations, focusing on how what her grandmother experienced in childhood affected her mother and how that trauma came to affect her own life. All of this and more on Lines from Loganberry. All right, hello. My name is Maisha Hedden, and I am the Local Voices Manager of Loganberry Books. Today, in this episode of our Craft and Conversation series, we have Elizabeth Wilcox, who is the author of The Long Tale of Trauma. We hope you will join us for other parts of the conversation and craft series where we take an author and we discuss their book, but then we also talk about the process that goes into making a good book, whether that's a compelling narrative or printing a lovely book. Elizabeth Wilcox is the fifth of seven children born to an English mother and an American father. She has an extensive career in writing. Elizabeth worked as a journalist, editor, and publisher, and producer, rather, in London, Hong Kong, and the United States. She's worked across mediums in print, television, and the web, and also in radio. Her first book, The Mommy Economy, Mother's Guide to Getting Family-Friendly Work, was published in 2003. And right now, she currently works developing learning content that addresses addresses child development, mental health, and trauma. And I believe she has some work coming up with uh, New York City Public Schools. The Long Tale of Trauma, today's book, looks at the inheritability of trauma across three generations of women with a focus on adverse childhood experiences or what is commonly known as ACE. Elizabeth Wilcox, welcome to Loganberry Books. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be here. It is our pleasure. Could you please open by reading the passage? Sure. So I will open with a a passage that is the voice of Anna. My work is, is told through the voice of different mothers and different daughters predominantly, beginning um, with the birth of my grandmother, Violet, in 1904. And Anna, she's illegitimately born, and Anna has to give her up because she's a German house servant in England and she gets pregnant by the, her employer's son. He is dispatched off to Canada. She gives up her daughter, Violet, to go live with, with two spinster aunts. And then when her child is six years old, so when Anna's child, Violet, is six years old, she adopts her back home. And, and so Violet, having lived in this quite affluent, middle-class English household, is suddenly adopted back into basically the slums of London to live with her German mother 
and her German-Jewish stepfather right before the outbreak of the First World War. And there's a lot of anti-Semitism at the time, a lot of xenophobia. I wanted to write a little bit about, from Anna's voice, about what it might have felt like having your daughter come to you for the first time, age six. And, um, and so that, that's what this passage is about. Anna Bethnal Green, London, 1910 to 1915. Violet's acceptance of her new life took longer than Anna had hoped. That first year, there were so many times when Violet would have an outburst over the most innocuous of things, a lost sock, too many nuts on her cake. Violet's little face would flush and she would scream or run from her mother as if in need of an escape. At such times, Lewis would shrug, knowing better than to get involved. Let her be, he would say, when Violet was particularly uncontrolled. And in time, Violet would return, composed as if nothing had transpired between them, the past forgotten again. Give her time, Lewis would say, for as composed as Violet often was, both Anna and Lewis could see that Violet's forbearance was a thin armor to the struggle within her. So Anna waited always reminding herself that her daughter no doubt missed her home in Rickmansworth, her pampered life, the attention and sense of belonging she once got. She reminded herself that her daughter's attitude was to be expected, and that, in fact, given her change in circumstances, she was surprisingly restrained. Violet never commented on the single worn couch or the stench in the narrow stairwell that connected all six flats or the brazen woman above who entertained loud men in her flat at all hours of the night. Yes, she did carry in her a persistent and silent refutation, evident in almost all that she did, in the unexpected check of her small head in response to what Anna herself had thought was a benign remark, or in the stiff way she carried herself through the dirty streets to her overcrowded school. Admittedly, Anna sometimes found her daughter's aloofness difficult to bear, but she accepted what she saw for what she decided it had to be, a means for her daughter to cope. She tried not to feel hurt. She kept no record of the wrongs. Maternal love, she knew, was a love so different from all else, so vast and infinite, with no start and no end. It was a love that since her daughter's birth, she had carried in every cell of her body. And having Violet home in the flesh, was a visible rematerialization of what she had so long held, eternal in space, divine in the true sense, patient and kind, protected and trusted, hoped and persevered, forgiving, just like they said. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You sort of actually touched on this inside of the passage. I think that would be really helpful to the people who haven't read the book yet for you to put the work that you did covering four generations of your mothers into historical context. When I read it, I thought it was very much of an immigrant story, which is obviously so timely for what we're all going through right now in the United States. Your maternal ancestors go through a lot of rootlessness and near homelessness in some aspects. So can you set the stage, set the context, the setting of your book for the readers? Can you tell us about the anti-Semitism and the xenophobia, the anti-German sentiment that was going on in England prior to World War I, and then also the extraordinary history of Operation Pied Piper, which I just 
I mean, I know I had never heard of before reading your book, and I think a lot of people probably haven't heard of it. Um, sure. So what was interesting is that passage that I just read, that that chapter, I submitted that chapter to one actually literary magazine and they rejected me, but I got a really nice note back from the editor. And he said, you know, a problem I had with that chapter is I had thought it was the beginning of World War II. And it wasn't until the end that I realized it was the beginning of World War One, And you know, to me, that, that was somewhat intentional. So I just sort of left it as was. But in the beginning, you know, in the buildup to World War One, there was so much xenophobia, so much anti-Semitism. And within the area where my grandmother and my great grandmother were living, it was very impoverished. And it, it, I think it, I imagine it to have been a very difficult place to have been as an immigrant and as uh, as a Jewish person you know, anybody who was other in any sense. So that build up to the First World War, I thought, this is interesting, you know, this sort of repetition, because we always think of World War II that way. So then, you know, jump to World War II when um, my grandmother is now mother and has my own mother as her daughter, age three. They had been living in Holland when Hitler blitzed Holland. And Long story short is my my mother and my uncle and my grandfather managed to escape, but my uh, grandmother did not. So when they arrived into London, the British government put in, in force this policy called Operation Pied Piper. And they said in order to protect the children from the bombs in London, all the children should be put on trains and sent out of London. So there is a lot of literature written around that time around Operation Pied Piper, like Paddington Bear. I mean, these children were literally put on trains. They went up to Wales in the north of England, and they had numbers around their neck, just like Paddington Bear, and they were picked up by these strangers. And also C.S. Lewis, a lot of his writing is about that time as well. But anyway, so my mother was age three, and my uncle was age one and a half, and they're standing on a platform, literally, and picked up by strangers and taken into their home. And for my mother, it was a very terrible time. Um, there was a lot of abuse and neglect that occurred. And a lot of the children during that time would go on to really suffer in later life. In fact, there was a study done about women who participated in Operation Pied Piper, and almost 50% of them had level two depression or greater. And that was due to these this basically terrible adverse childhood experiences that, that they'd had. So it, there really were long lasting effects. And, and, you know, just to digress a little bit, part of the impetus behind my work was I really wanted to share the, the impact of, of war and trauma on women and children. The, the narrative we always hear is the story of men on the battlefield, and we see them afterwards in films with lost limbs. But there's a real emotional and, and mental health toll on women and children from trauma. In one hand, it's invisible, but it's really not invisible. We see it, but we don't want to confront it. We don't want to talk about it. And it, it's long lasting. Right. And um, it's interesting that you talk about this long-lasting trauma that lands on women and children. I was especially interested about the story that happened in the prelude to World War One, 
where I believe it's Violet decides on this name change, right? Yeah. And her life has been a story, a story of name changes, right? Sometimes she's cross and maybe she's Brecken. And then, you know, and sometimes she's Katz, um, Katzenstein. Katzenstein. Um, And, you know, and frankly, just being a black woman, I always think of like my own personal history as being one of like the robbed names, but you have these Germans and these Jews who also had robbed names. Can you talk about like what Jewish people went through in the prelude to world war one and this thing with the name chains and internment? Yeah, it's really interesting. So as I mentioned, Violet's stepfather was Kachtenstein. So basically she was born by my, my great grandmother, Anna Brackner. And she had to give up her child. So she then, oh, she but she kept the name Brocker. And there was no kind of attribution or no recognition that her father was cross because she was illegitimate. And then um, she gets adopted by, readopted by her mother and her stepfather. And she becomes Kachtenstein. But of course, this is the prelude to World War One, And it's a Jewish German name. And so my great grandmother decides that her daughter should have the name of Cross because it's a good British name. But what's amazing about that story is not only does she give her daughter the name of Cross, of so that's her biological father who is never recognized that that's her daughter, but she also gives the child that she has had by Louis Kostenstein the name of Cross too. So it's got he's got no relation to this. Christian British guy who's now living in Canada, but in order to protect her children, she gives them a name, a nice British name like Cross. And things did not go well for um, for the stepfather, yes. right? So the stepfather, he is then interned by the British during World War One um, because he's German, and then he gets released back into Germany after World War One. And he gets sent off to concentration camp in the Second World War, and he's killed for being Jewish. It's just, you know, a man without a country, right? He's punished for his who he is, you know, by everybody. And you can only imagine the kind of trauma that Violet had to feel watching him go through this. Yeah. It must have been incredibly painful, talking about maternal trauma and the things that women bear. Yeah, and I have no idea. So my mother growing up, my grandmother never talked of her past. And um, my grandmother actually never even told my mother that she was illegitimate. She never spoke of her past at all. All she would ever say is that she was raised by these two spinster aunts whom she adored. That's all she ever shared. And the only way that my mother and my my uncle discovered that their mother had been illegitimate and that she had a different history was after she died, they uncovered a letter in her chest of drawers that she carried her whole life, which was a letter from her biological father, which was apparently in response to her asking to get to meet him. And uh, he had said, no, I don't think it's a good idea that you meet me. And and it wasn't until that moment that my mother and my uncle even realized that their mother had this whole past that they knew nothing about. Let's just jump right in. There are a lot of conflicted family relationships inside of your book, um, I think more so than most. One of the things that's very intense about the long tale of trauma 
is you are honest about the challenges of caring for your elderly mother who's still alive and, you know, trying to be a good daughter while also kind of grappling with emotional baggage that's from you, but then also essentially caused by her. There are a lot of people going through this right now with the COVID pandemic, just a lot of people having to take extra and close care of their elderly parents. I want to know how, why did you decide to be honest about how tough it is to care for elderly parents and what do you want us to learn from it? Like, what do you want our takeaway to be? So as I spoke about before, I think, you know, we all carry wounds. And I think for somebody like my mother, she carries the effects of this trauma, this really quite significant, you know, number of adverse child experiences she had were just, they had the CDC did a, a study in the 1990s with um, the Kaiser Foundation. And they did a, a they did a sort of basically study of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And, and apparently if you have like two or three, it can really have very detrimental impact on you as you get older at, and, and your whole life, actually. I figure my mother probably had about five out of 10. And, and subsequently, I've actually spoken to a friend of mine who um, is a psychologist, and and she was saying that, um, in fact, they they now say there's so many more actually adverse childhood experiences than are even those ten that they kind of identified in the, in the um, 1990s, and yet in contrast, here's Elizabeth, who I had an amazing childhood. I had a, a mother who always gave unconditional support, had sort of complete confidence in us. You gave us all these things that as a, as a child, she never had sort of routine structure, just this really quite exceptional childhood, along with my father together, they provided this, this sort of environment. And yet when she underwent financial hardship, the mental health challenges that were kind of just below the surface were triggered. I had a very hard time as her daughter reconciling and understanding that. And I mentioned in my book that we have to see past the mask of trauma to the core self. And people who have undergone trauma are not the trauma. They are the person below that. And I really struggled often, and I still struggle sometimes, with saying to myself, this is the, this is the result of what she endured. This is not her. She is a very loving very supportive uh, woman and was a great mom. And I have to recognize in myself, for whatever reason, I often struggle to to see past the, the mask of trauma. And so I thought it was really important for me, particularly if I'm going to be revealing of my mother's struggles, that I be revealing of my own and also to normalize to some extent the struggles that we all carry, whether or not we love and care for somebody who's had serious trauma or whether or not we carry that trauma ourselves. So, you know, during, you mentioned kind of during COVID and, and, and elderly parents during this time, even now, so my book actually was written prior to COVID, but it was dealing with 
elderly parents as well. And my mother, by the way, hates the word elderly. She's, so that was one thing she took exception to in my book. She said, I'm not elderly. I said, mom, you're 83 years old. If you're not elderly, who is elderly? Because <laughs> she doesn't see herself that way. And I'll be the same way probably when I'm 83. But anyway, I, I had to. I don't cast my best self in this book, but I'm not always my best self. You know, in fact, I'm usually not my best self. So I wanted to share that. And I, I thought, well, people are going to read this book and and they may think, gosh, Elizabeth is a pretty self-centered, awful daughter. And, you know, sometimes I am a self-centered, awful daughter. And so I wanted to show that. Yeah, I wanted to normalize it. Right. Because everybody struggles with it. And it was, it was, it was a tough portrayal. And I think that you were pretty forthright that, you know, sometimes your sisters were just better at it than you. I like that you were honest about that. You're like, okay, I'm being unkind to my mother right now, but you know, I've got a couple of sisters and I think in one case, a sister-in-law who really kind of like stood up and took, take, took care of your mother. And I mean, I mean, you're honest, your mother got a diagnosis of PTSD, right? And she, she was unhealthy. She lost her voice, which obviously it had so much metaphysical significance. Like, what does it mean to lose your voice? I actually really enjoyed that part of the book. I want to ask, I was obviously was very taken inside the book with Violet. Like, I, Violet was one of the characters that I just wanted to know more about her. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about avoidance coping. You even actually take the time to list out 10 things to do if you catch yourself in the middle of avoidance coping. And it was, uh, from a literary perspective, it was really good because you kind of wrapped in this sort of clinical definition of avoidance coping with Violet and how, you know, she's in Germany in Hitler's rise to power, but she just doesn't want to really think about it. And she's just going to kind of go to the cafe and go on with her life. And she's kind of aware that's going in the background, but she's not going to like address it head on. She's not going to demonstrate. She's not going to protest or anything like that. So for a moment, could you talk to our audience about what is avoidance coping and why did you think that it was important to really spend time and to delve into that sort of psychological, maybe not disorder, but something like that inside of the book? Like, why did you want to spend time with it? I, I have avoidance coping as well, which I recognize in myself. So there's that element. I'm like, oh, gosh, I have it. And then I but I look at my um, grandmother's life and how in the heck could she reconcile? I mean, first of all, the fact that she raised two children and well, was there part of the time. My mother was not really raised that much by her mother. How could her children go through their entire lives and never hear anything about her past? And in fact, when I spoke to people who knew my grandmother, the way that they depicted my grandmother was very different than the way my mother depicted my grandmother. This one woman I mentioned in this book who was our caregiver when we were younger, who was our nanny, she was German. And she had actually first worked for my grandfather and my grandmother in Germany. And then they thought she was wonderful. So she came to the States and, and helped with me and my six siblings. And she always described my grandmother as they could sit and chat with her for ages. She loved a cup of coffee. She loved to have a pastry. And she was so jolly and 
And that was so at odds with the way my mother depicted my grandmother. And then I thought of the fact that what you just mentioned in the build up to the Second World War. So I know she was living in Germany and I know her half brother was also living in Germany and, and he was half Jewish, but he carried this name of Cross. And they apparently had a falling out and he moved back. To, I don't know when the falling out occurred, but then he apparently moved back to England and basically always went by cross and never spoke of his his German roots, really. So what was behind that? And I thought, gosh, if I were my grandmother and I were living in, in Germany and finally, after having this terrible childhood, I had a husband who was English and I was living in Germany and I had a great job. She had a great job. She was a buyer for um, Franz Fawning, which was a department store. She was a career woman. She'd accomplished so much. And against which was this, the backdrop was Hitler on the rise. And she apparently hated Hitler. She never hiled Hitler, which she actually risked thrown into jail for never hiling Hitler. And her stepfather was Jewish and her half-brother was was half Jewish, but she didn't want to leave Germany. She wanted to stay in Germany. So how could you process that? So I thought that she must be like me, avoiding Hoper. So that that was kind of the genesis behind that, because we all have to find a way to to deal with our emotions. And I don't think avoiding coping is the best thing. You know, they, they talk about the fact that that there are m- more constructive ways. But, you know, that's what I sort of imagined her to do. And that's what I see myself doing all the time. We're going to go ahead now and move into the craft section. Elizabeth is going to talk about the very hard process of writing. So, Elizabeth, um, by my calculation, it took you about 20 years to write this book. From the time that you kind of identify that this is a story that should be told. This is a story that should be brought into the world and the time that it was published. Talk to me about why did it take 20 years? Well, I think it, it ended up a very different book than the way it began. It began, as I mentioned in my book, at the kitchen table with my mother, and she wanted to share her story. And I, I had grown up with this, like, just the awareness of this story, because she carried it with her. And then I thought, so at the time, I was an aspiring journalist. I thought, okay, it's actually a pretty good story. I'll record it, and I'll be done with it. But then over time, what happened was... It began it became much more personal story for me, particularly when my mother, they, they she and my father uh, faced financial difficulty and her PTSD was triggered. And and the repercussions of that story became very kind of tangible and evident. And um, and she got depressed. So it started to take on another life. It was it wasn't just the story of my past. It was the story of my present as well. And, and then what happened about four years ago is is. Then President Trump was separating children along the border from their parents. That really upset my mother and it it really upset me. And I felt we both felt actually that the story that needed to be needed to be told this story about what were the implications of children being separated from their parents. And we'd seen it happen twice in my own maternal history. And and the impact of that was going to be great. So so. Over the course of those next three years, I finally sat my butt down and really put the story together. 
Um, so yeah, I've been working on it for, for 20 years, collecting bits and pieces. Um, but it wasn't until that happened that I thought I got to get this story done. So there was a political urgency. There was the urgency of now about why the story of children being separated from their parents need to be told. I always say that if you separate children from their parents, you're going to end up on the wrong side of history. It can be the aboriginal people in Australia. It can be Native American children in the United States. It can be Wuhong children. Um, But if you separate children from their parents, you will end up on the wrong side of history. Okay, so there was the urgency of now and telling the story, but you also had to do a lot of research to get the story told. I mean, like literally, you're crossing countries, Canada, Germany, England, the United States, you're crossing nearly a century of history. Talk to us about your, I was going to say research process, but really, where did you pull research from? I know that like your uncle Neville, like he had a lot of stuff, but where did you, where did you start to drag in the information and the facts to tell this story? Well, my uncle Neville, he was born in 1939 in Germany, right? Think of Neville Chamberlain. I mean, my grandmother, pretty obviously, she didn't want the war to take place, you know, World War II. Um, but he he's a very, very bright, very accomplished man who's a lawyer um, and was head of a publishing house in, in England and very factual. <laughs> so he would send me lots of information all the time because he knew I was doing this research. And then I would be able to cross check that information and and I was very lucky in that there were actually, so when my, my mother escaped from Holland, there was actually a few articles in the whole Daily Mail about it. So there was a lot that I could connect to there. The other thing that I was able to do is is through, you know, just genealogy, which I guess is, you know, it's really popular now. You can go to these sites, but I was actually able to find my ancestors. What I found really interesting, which I mentioned in my book, was that great-grandfather who was a biological father of Violet, that he actually died by suicide in Canada shortly after he got the letter from his daughter asking to visit him. It, It could have just been because of depression, the depression. I don't know. But, you know, you suddenly start to uncover these these weird turn of events and facts that you just didn't anticipate at all. And then that in turn kind of gets your imagination going. So I was lucky in that I had a lot to draw from, but I also feel like I always think of Doris Kearns Goodwin, who I think is just this amazing woman. And she always says through history, we can learn so much. And I, and I, I feel that very much through looking back at my own history right now. A lot of the research that you pull in is academic research around generational trauma, about ACE. Did you, in your own mind, in your own heart, draw a conclusion from the research? Like You play with the idea in the biography memoir about the genetic component, like the hereditary component, and then also environmental components. Um, about why some people recover and why some people just, just don't have much resilience. After looking at your own family history and looking at the research, 
What conclusions do you draw? Is it more genetic? Is it more individual? Is it more environmental? Like, what do you, what do you think? And again, you're very forthright inside of this memoir. You said that the way that you respond to your mother is very different from the way that your siblings do. Like, why did it hit you hard and it didn't hit them hard? Um, I think that, so, you know, you look at epigenesis, right? And, and, and you look at the fact that experience and environment can also alter the expression of one's genes. So for, you know, there's a study done on, on rats, this mom rat underwent trauma and then in her female pups, and I reference this in my book, in her female pups, the behaviors that she developed as a result of that trauma were then evident in her children. And so it, it basically, the, the trauma had altered the expression of the gene. So I do think that there's definitely a genetic component to how we respond to trauma. But I also think that there's an environmental influence as well. So I'm not really willing to say that it's all genetics or it's all environment. I, I reference in my book, you know, everyone made fun. I can't remember the name of, of the, um, the scientist, but, you know, Darwin came out and he said, oh, you know, the long necks of, of, of giraffes are all due to the fact that, you know, those are the ones that survived. Right. But in fact, there's the argument <laughs> that that the environment meant that some giraffes had to stretch further in order to food and that environment was altering the, the expression of that gene. So, you know, the length of the neck. And I do think even within our own little microcosms, a, a, a child can have the same parent, but one child might be more resilient than the other. And the environment might be very similar or exactly the same, but one may be more resilient than the other. And you can't help but say to yourself that genetics has to come into play in that situation. So my sort of weak answer is that I think it, who we are and how resilient we are has to be a mixture of genetics and environment. So Elizabeth, um, you know, before this book, your last one was out in 2003. Um, this one was actually the official published date was 2020. November 2020. Or was it? So end of the year. November 2020. So I got to ask, you're right and gal, what's up next for um, you? So I what's think I'm going to continue to use I actually, I, I'm not very good at coming up with my own stories. So I think I'm much better at using history. So, and I, as I mentioned before, I think history is very illuminating. So I am looking at it, uh, another history of a woman. I, I like female stories, trying to create a story around a history of a woman from the 1800s, which has its own challenges, particularly when it comes to language. But um yeah, that's what I'm working on now. Wonderful. All right. I would like to thank everybody for coming. Um, Elizabeth Wilcox, thank you. This was a wonderful interview. Really appreciate that. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate it. And thank you, if you read my book, for reading my book. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. 
You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com. Check our social media at Loganberry Books and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.